in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Hello and welcome to this week's Nature Podcast. This week we're taking a look at electric eel-inspired batteries and virus-inspired shells. Plus, an explosive ingredient that can transform volcanic eruptions. This is the Nature Podcast for December the 14th, 2017. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. First up this week, we've got a report from Ewan Calloway, who's been finding out what viruses can teach us about design. Viruses are studies in symmetry. Their shells are made of repeating proteins that naturally form elegant geometric shapes, such as icosahedrons and helices. These shells encase genetic instructions for a virus that lets it infect host cells and make copies of itself. Researchers at the University of Washington in Seattle have been working on designing their own virus-like protein shells that could be used in gene therapy as an alternative to the real viruses currently used. They've now gone one step further and made virus shells that contain the genetic instructions needed to make the shell proteins, and that can be made to adapt to new environments through a form of evolution. I asked Gabe Butterfield why he and his team of protein designers are inspired by viruses. We've really managed to mimic initially, really before this project even, kind of the the simple structural composition of a virus that is this icosahedral shell. You know, and there's sort of a basic science question about, you know, what does it take to design a viral shell? Um, and then what does that shell need to acquire to, to end up with some of the properties that viruses have? And then on the other hand, there's sort of the application side, you know, we absolutely envision these things as having some biomedical relevance in terms of delivering um, genetic material to various sites in the body. Um, and so it's kind of, you know, both the basic science and the application side. And how far have you gotten in the past in, in designing virus shells? We've gotten really pretty good already at the computational design of the shell itself. So really the the key design principle um, is this idea of symmetry. And so if you look at kind of the simplest viral capsids, you see that they just have a very simple symmetry, which you can replicate in the computer. Um, And because it's symmetric, you don't have to design every single component, but rather you design, you know, a single interface or maybe two interfaces And that actually just propagates symmetrically, and you end up with something that looks like a viral shell. You try, computationally, a large number of protein sequences, and basically you then just check which of them can fit to end up with something that actually assembles into a viral shell. And do they just assemble by themselves once you have the proteins made? All we do is we just order DNA that encodes the proteins we've designed, um, and we actually just let bacterial cells do the rest. You know, they do everything from actually synthesizing the protein, um, and then actually once that protein has been synthesized, that's right, it just self-assembles into this viral shell. Are these viral shells that you're designing, for lack of a better word, like any other 
existing viruses out there, or are they just completely new to life? Yeah, so that's something that I think is really interesting, is that, right, these proteins have absolutely no homology at the sequence level to current viral proteins. Now, obviously, their shape is absolutely modeled on viral proteins. But these are, these are completely new. I mean, we've, we've talked about how you've gone about designing uh, these, these virus shells. How do you make them evolve? Because I think that's what the real breakthrough is in this paper. We've re-engineered them relatively slightly such that they encapsulate the mRNA, or you could say the instructions that encode the shell inside of itself, such that it carries with it sort of the instructions for its own construction. So the fact that the design contains messenger RNA instructions means you're able to put it through an evolution-like process to actually improve certain traits. What traits were you focused on? So the things that we've done so far, right, are just, you know, improving the ability of this shell to protect that RNA genome and then actually to carry it around in circulation um, inside of a living mouse. And then sort of the next steps, we're really trying to move this towards something that could actually be useful as a, deliver, as a delivery tool. And so then there's really a lot more that we need to do um, in terms of evolving its ability to target particular cell populations. And then, you know, once it's targeted those cells, actually to release some interesting cargo. Ah, so that's what I really wanted to understand is that if this is, is this something that could be useful for, for gene therapy, which I think uses viruses now to deliver genes to cells. In the long term, we absolutely see this as something that, that will have some advantages over kind of the typical way that people do gene therapy now with viruses. Because these things are sort of made from scratch, they're just, they're a lot more engineerable in general. Um, and so one example I like to give is that you can imagine in, um, delivering all kinds of other things besides just DNA or RNA. Um, but there are all sorts of, you know, synthetic analogs of DNA and RNA, which you could imagine delivering as well. So this design is obviously inspired by real-world viruses, but do you consider this to be a virus? Uh, oh, absolutely not. This is not, this is not yet a virus in any sense of the word. Um, this, is a, this is a protein shell, which we've evolved to have some of the properties that viruses have. But it, it is absolutely not virus. Um, and there, there are many other things that we lack that natural viruses have. And, and the first thing is just sort of a mechanism of getting into cells, um, a mechanism of actually replicating the genome once you've gotten in. Um, and then third, of course, some method of getting back out of an infected cell. The idea that we've been able to create from scratch even pieces of a virus, I think, is just really exciting to people. What kind of blows my mind is that you're just kind of looking at a form and doing your own version at it, which I think is very cool. You know, I think that's one of the exciting things about protein design in general is it allows us to build up some of the functions that we see, you know, across various domains of life, whether that be viruses, whether that be, you know, enzyme functions or anything else from totally non-natural sequences, you know, which have never had that function before. And then in some cases actually watch, you know, watch what happens when you start evolving from a totally novel starting point. That was Gabe Butterfield at the University of Washington speaking with reporter Ewan Calloway. For the full study, head on over to nature.com forward slash nature. The research highlights are still to come, where we'll be learning about wind power's turbulent future.
Next on the show, though, I want to talk about how the subtle chemical characteristics of magma can transform volcanic eruptions. Now, I'm no volcanologist. When I think of an eruption, I tend to think of the kind of the classic cone-shaped volcano firing a plume of ash and rock up into the air. Well, this isn't the only type of volcano, but neither is it the only type of eruption. Eruptions can split broadly into two categories. The first are explosive, and they are incredibly violent, ejecting material high into the atmosphere at an astonishing rate. Think of the Mount St. Helens eruption as an example. The other type is an effusive eruption, which sees magma spewing out of a volcano and spilling down the sides as lava, something you might see in Hawaii, for instance. The magma inside effusive volcanoes has one major difference to explain its less explosive eruption. That magma is poor in gases, so there is no potential for an explosion. On the other hand, a magma that is involved in an explosive eruption has a lot of gases under pressure, and the release of the pressure is the main force driving the explosion in a volcano. This is Danilo de Genova from the University of Bristol, who has led the new research on these different eruptions. He explained that viscosity of the magma is key to where the gas builds up. The more viscous the magma, the more gas gets trapped, with explosive consequences. Danilo has been looking at rhyolitic magma that's primarily made of a pinky-grey igneous rock called rhyolite. This magma is very viscous, and there have been some enormous rhyolite-related explosive eruptions. Perhaps the most extreme are the ancient eruptions that happened in Yellowstone National Park that covered huge amounts of Western America in ash. However, rhyolite eruptions aren't always explosive. In fact, they can switch between being explosive and effusive. This change is down to variations in viscosity caused by the makeup of the magma. The viscosity is determined by the, um, the basic components of a magma, and the most important uh, are the silica and iron content. To better understand how the levels of iron oxide and silica can affect viscosity, Danilo and his colleagues mocked up some magma samples. These samples mimic the chemistry of rocks collected from Yellowstone National Park that were formed as ancient lava cooled, having been explosively or effusively ejected from a volcano. As melting this manufactured magma requires incredibly high temperatures, it takes some rather special kit to measure the viscosity. We have a platinum crucible uh, into the furnace, which hosts the, the magma, and then we use a spindle made of platinum that is steering inside the magma, and then we measure the resistance to the rotation. This is a bit like trying to stir a teaspoon in a jar of honey. Except in this case, the teaspoon is a platinum spindle, and the honey is made out of searing hot magma. But either way, the higher the resistance, the higher the viscosity. The team showed that at a particular range, increasing the iron oxide content while decreasing silica results in a more fluid magma. However, once iron oxide content gets above a certain level, things rather turn on their head and the magma becomes extremely sticky. It turns out that when you go over this level, the iron oxide begins to form nanocrystals. Now these nanocrystals cause huge changes in the structure of the magma, although quite why or when they form is something that's not fully understood. But they have recently been found in rocks from real-world eruptions. What we have found in the last year is that there are many rocks erupted, for example from Etna in Italy, that have these nanoparticles. And these nanoparticles are associated to uh, rocks erupted in an explosive way, where actually we expect effusive eruptions. Mount Etna on the Italian island of Sicily is surrounded by towns and cities as are many other volcanoes around the world. 
And Danilo hopes that learning how these volcanoes might erupt in future could be of great help. We have found a chemical tipping point for magmas, and what we can do now is understanding how close is a volcano to this tipping point and understanding, actually, if a volcano can erupt effusively or can erupt explosively in the near future. That was Danilo de Genova there. You can read his paper over at nature.com forward slash nature. Stay tuned for exciting explanations of electric eels and on the news chat, a story of an acupuncture trial. Now, though, we're joined by Noah Baker for this week's research highlights. If you're a big fan of wind power, this week's first research highlight could be a bit of a blow. As the planet warms, climate change could disrupt wind patterns around the globe, changing the amount of energy we can generate from wind turbines. A new analysis of how climate change will affect weather patterns shows that wind resources will decrease in northern mid-latitudes of the planet and increase in the southern hemisphere. Knowing which way the wind is blowing will hopefully help us plan for the future by putting turbines in the windiest places. Get blown away by that story over at Nature Geoscience. The Tasmanian tiger, or thylacine, is a slim, stripy, dog-like marsupial from Australia. Or at least, it was, until humans hunted it to extinction. Now, scientists have extracted DNA from a tiny thylacine pup preserved in a jar and have sequenced its genome. Various fun facts have been revealed by combining this new info with other data. One interesting observation was that genetic diversity in thylacines seems to have been declining even before humans arrived in Australia, possibly due to a cooling of the climate at the time. Another area of interest was looking for DNA clues as to how this marsupial evolved to look so much like the completely unrelated dog family. The protein-coding genes in the baby thylacine don't show the same changes as were thought to have occurred in dog ancestors, but further research on regulatory genes could provide some answers. Read more on that over at Nature, Ecology and Evolution. We love that so many of you listen to The Nature Podcast each week, but we want to listen to you too. It's great hearing what you think of the show, so do get in touch at Nature Podcast on Twitter or email to podcast at nature.com. Huge thanks to Dora Kobrinick for getting in touch to let us know that she still loves the show, even though she misses Kerry Smith. Never heard of her. Just kidding. Kerry's the best, and she has left me some giant shoes to fill. But if you'd like to feedback and help us reach an even wider audience, then make sure to give us a review or a rating on iTunes or your favourite podcatcher. Every review is like a lovely little wordy Christmas present. Next up, Noah Baker reports on a battery inspired by a fishy friend. It seems scientists are always on the hunt for newfangled ways to generate and store electricity. And Michael Meyer from the University of Fribourg in Switzerland is no exception. He and his team's power plan takes inspiration from one of the natural world's electrical wonders, the electric knife fish, or electric eel to its friends. Their aim? To make a flexible, biocompatible battery which can power anything from pacemakers to wearable tech. I gave Michael a call and he told me all about the electrifying inspiration behind his battery. Yeah, we've been <laughs> intrigued by this organism really for centuries. and This, this amazing animal that is somehow able, uh, within biological constraints, to generate these 
very high voltages that can stun prey and, and, and also grown humans. I mean, in the very beginning, of course, uh, when it wasn't clear exactly what electricity is, the, the eels actually played a, a very important role even as a as a source of of electricity uh, that was relatively high magnitude. I mean, of course, the the other option was lightning, which which was then so big and so dangerous that it was not easy to work with for for all kinds of obvious reasons. Can you give me a quick run through about how the the electric organ in an electric eel works? Essentially, the idea is that water solutions with different salt in them have, of course, a natural tendency to mix. That's the overall driving force behind the generation of this bioelectricity. And normally, this mixing would occur and cause a little bit of heat, but no, really no electricity. But if one uh, places a membrane in between these two solutions, and if this membrane lets one sort of ions uh, of salt molecules uh, pass faster than the other, then quickly after putting everything in contact, uh, a separation of charge occurs, just naturally from the tendency of solutions to mix. And that builds up a charge, and that charge is relatively small, typically in the order of, uh, let's say, 150 millivolts, 0.15 volts. But if then many such compartments are put in series, just like normal batteries can be put in series, then these charges add up and they can reach, in the eels case, up to 600 volts. And you wanted to take inspiration from that to create your own artificial electric organ. We were intrigued by the idea that you could use chemical energy in the form of of the food, for example, that the eel can eat, and convert it to very large power output electrically. It would be wonderful if one could somehow uh, on the fly uh, generate a voltage or or power, electrical power, to drive mobile devices, wearables or or implantables. So tell me, how did you go about replicating it? What was your approach? Right. So the essential uh, things that we wanted to accomplish was to take or or implantables, uh, solutions of different salt strengths. And then we knew, of course, we needed these uh, selective membranes. Then we, in principle, would replicate the very basics of what this eel does. And the question really was, is this doable? And you made these constituent parts, the the membranes, the salt solutions, etc., from blobs of a material called a hydrogel. And they were stacked up in various clever arrays to generate a peak voltage of about 110 volts. Now, that's pretty impressive. But my question is, why do we need these batteries? It it seems that we've already got pretty good technology for powering our smartphones or medical implants. Why make a new one? Potentially, if all the materials are chosen correctly, uh, such a system could be entirely biocompatible and and completely non-toxic. We use hydrogels in contact lenses. Hydrogels are used for wound healing all over in, in, in the body. They're also transparent. Uh, so these could now be all of a sudden a power concept that could be entirely transparent, such that one could imagine a biologically powered uh, contact lens that might have a small display integrated. And probably the most intriguing aspect of, of this entire concept is what the eel does so well, which is to be able to recharge inside of a biological organisms by converting the energy from food into stored electrical 
charges. Now, that is intriguing. That would suggest that potentially, could you create a battery that charges itself within our bodies using our own machinery that we already have? This is the wonderful thing about bio-inspired research. The eel shows us that in principle, yes, this can be done. Biological systems can generate very substantial electrical power. Can this be done uh, with an engineered material, uh, reliably, uh, reproducibly uh, inside of, a, of an organism? I think that remains to be seen, but it is such an intriguing question. That was Michael Meyer from the University of Fribourg in Switzerland talking to Noah Baker. And if you want to see Michael's battery being made and put through its paces, head over to the Nature Video YouTube channel where we have just the video for you. Find that at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Time now for this week's news chat. And we're joined in the studio by Joe Marchant. Hi, Joe. Hello. Right. First up today then, Joe, I think I would like to talk about narwhals. And uh, as our listeners, I'm sure, are aware, narwhals are whales with this kind of magnificent unicorn-like horn on their heads. Yeah, this is a fascinating story, actually. So these are quite elusive creatures. There's a, an estimated 100 to 150,000 of them living in Arctic waters around Greenland, Canada, Russia. And until now, they haven't really been much affected by human activity. There's a, an, an Inuit hunt where a few of them are killed, but otherwise they've been left pretty much to their own devices. So this is researchers trying to work out what impact sort of stresses or human threats might have on them. And, it, and they've come up with quite paradoxical results. Yeah. And as I understand, this new story kind of focuses on narwhals' heartbeats. Yes. So what the researchers did is as they were releasing narwhals that were being rescued, they'd been um, stranded during this hunt or trapped in fishing nets. They attached various recorders to them that were collecting heart rate and dive data so that they could see how the narwhals were responding physiologically and then followed them as they then swam off. And they found that weirdly, whereas most animals either have a freeze or a flee response to stress, so they're either trying to escape as quickly as possible or they're freezing, playing dead, if you like, the heartbeat is slowing. The narwhals did this strange combination of the two. They were swimming away, diving very quickly, but at the same time, their heart rate dropped dramatically to just three or four beats per minute. And that is really dangerous because they're using a lot of oxygen while they're diving, and that puts a lot of strain on the heart. Um, the researchers found that in this a typical escape dive after rescue from nets or stranding, the narwhals were using up to 97% of their oxygen stores, which is really dangerous, um, compared to just 52% for a normal dive. Yeah, I mean, if you think about, if you were to hear a loud noise right now, and don't worry, I'm not going to do one, then suddenly your heart rate will spike, you know? I guess in humans, it's the, the classic fight or flight. So this is neither one nor the other then. The researchers just say they don't appear to have evolved a very helpful response to this kind of threat. So this could be quite dangerous for them if they're using up a lot of energy to try and get away quickly at the same time as diving and slowing their heart rate. So those two things together is really dangerous. It does seem a bit paradoxical and it does seem that, that usually evolution finds a solution to these sorts of problems. Why have the narwhals not worked out a way to not have this kind of neither fight nor flight response? I think it's just that these are threats that the narwhals haven't faced before. So we're talking about human threats coming in, particularly these um, seismic exploration studies that oil companies are doing. You've got this noise, this kind of nondescript threat that's covering a large amount of the ocean, which is simply going to be affecting these animals animals in a way that they haven't previously faced. Well, let's move on then to our next story. I mean, let's maybe deep dive into something else now then, Joe. And we're going to talk a little bit about acupuncture. And maybe that's something we don't often talk about in nature. 
What's going on at the moment in the US? Uh, So this is a story about um, quite a big trial of acupuncture to manage pain in cancer patients. So this is not about using acupuncture to cure the cancer or treat the cancer. This is about managing the side effects of chemotherapy, Um, in particular uh, a class of uh, cancer drugs um, called aromatase inhibitors, which reduce uh, estrogen levels in patients with breast cancer. And these can work really effectively to stop the cancer from recurring, but you have to take them for several years, five to ten years, and they cause really serious side effects, particularly pain, which causes a lot of women to then stop taking those drugs. And so this is a trial of acupuncture showing that compared to sham or fake acupuncture or no treatment, the therapy actually significantly reduces their pain. And that's interesting, but it's also very controversial because there are a lot of sceptics out there who really feel that acupuncture is unscientific, magical thinking. There's absolutely nothing about it that could possibly help patients. Well, maybe before we talk about that debate, then let's talk about the trial itself. I mean, how many people were involved in it? Uh, So this was 226 women. And one of the interesting things about this trial was that it was a multi-site trial. So it was conducted at 11 different cancer centres across the United States. And this was um, several different teams of oncologists who who came together uh, to do this trial. And the team put a lot of effort into standardising the treatments that they were testing, both the real acupuncture and the fake acupuncture. Because whereas a, a pill is basically the same wherever you take it, acupuncture can vary depending on who's giving it to you. So that was one of the things that they really watched in this trial. There was a lot of training to make sure those practitioners were delivering exactly the same treatment in each place. When I saw this story, the first thing that kind of leapt to my mind is how do you fake having a needle stuck into your arm, hands, I mean, wherever you have it stuck? I mean, how, how, does, one, how does one fake that? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? It's not easy, but there are several ways of doing it. One is to have retractable needles. So it looks as if the needle is going into your skin, but actually it doesn't. And there are also other techniques like putting the needles you know, in the wrong places, not at acupuncture points, for example. Yeah, the, the, the sham acupuncture that they used had been previously validated in other patients and found to be um, convincing as a, as a real treatment. Mm, I suppose that then is a single blind trial that I don't know if I'm being stuck with one sort of needle or or another, uh, are some people using this as a stick to maybe beat this work with? Yeah, this is really the nub of why these trials are so controversial, because of course the gold standard is to have a double blind trial where the patient doesn't know whether they're getting the real treatment or the placebo, but the person giving it to them doesn't either, because we know that the, the attitudes and beliefs of somebody who's giving treatment can actually affect placebo responses and affect how well patients do. And of course, with acupuncture, even if you fool the patient, the therapists still know, you know, whether they're giving the real treatment or or the sham. And that was the case in this trial. So a few sceptics have have come out to say, well, this is all fine, but you can't rule out that that was what made the difference. Well, has anybody come out in defence of the trial then? Yeah, so quite a few. Um, So these are oncologists, not particularly acupuncture people who are doing the trial, um, but also some other pain specialists and integrative medicine specialists. Um, Integrative medicine is where complementary therapies are sort of integrated into conventional care in an evidence-based way. And their point would be that actually there are lots of fields where we don't have double-blind trials, things like palliative care, cognitive behavioural therapy, physical therapy. So the argument would be, well, we accept single-blind trials in all of these fields, so are the sceptics making a special case for, for acupuncture? So clearly two sides of the debate already then, but what has the trial found so far? So in this trial, um, the researchers gave breast cancer patients who are taking these aromatase inhibitors um, courses of acupuncture and found that after six weeks, their pain was on average one point less on a sort of 10 point 
scale of pain, which is statistically significant, but, but not huge. And then they also looked at how many patients had at least a two-point reduction in their pain. And here that number almost doubled. It was 58% of the women who got the true acupuncture compared to just around 30% for the sham acupuncture group and the no treatment group. So that, the researchers say, is a significant difference in terms of a clinically meaningful change for those women. And the hope is that that, in the long term, could help women to stick to their treatment. That's something that researchers are looking at now. So can the acupuncture help more women stay on this life-saving treatment? I mean, acupuncture has been around for hundreds, if not kind of thousands of years, I guess. But why this sudden kind of clinical interest in it again? Well, one of the reasons that there's so much interest in the US at the moment is because of the crisis over opioid painkilling drugs. So there's a real epidemic of addiction to opioid painkillers in the US at the moment. So everyone is looking for alternatives to treat chronic pain. We don't have good solutions for treating chronic pain, whether in cancer care or anything else. And that's causing a lot of researchers to look again at acupuncture and say, is there something here? And there are some quite interesting studies showing that acupuncture does trigger relevant neurophysiological changes, so changes in the brain and the central nervous system that are clinically relevant in pain conditions from carpal tunnel syndrome to fibromyalgia, for example. And then also we're getting these larger, more rigorous trials now as well. I think researchers, although they haven't solved all the problems with the trial design, are getting better at testing acupuncture in a rigorous way. Thanks for the update there, Joe. Find more on these stories and plenty more over at nature.com forward slash news. That's almost it for this week's show. But before we go, there's just time to tell you about one of our sister shows, the Nature Jobs podcast. The December episode is out on the 14th and is jam-packed with handy advice. Find out how lab supervisors can improve relationships with their research staff, plus how to show employers that you can learn on the job. Find it on the Nature Jobs blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to look out for next week's special holiday show, which will feature plenty of festive cheer. I guarantee it's going to be an absolute cracker. Until then, I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening.